Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, that the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath, our chapter will begin with a great conflict. The conflict is going to begin with the issue of the Sabbath. And it's going to be talked about in verses 1 through 21. And then the conflict, Satan, verses 22 through 37. And then signs and miracles in verses 38 through 50. Chapter 12 and chapter 13 are compressed and the events that take place in chapters 12 and 13 are all taking place in a single day. As a matter of fact, you might think of Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 13 as a peek into a day in the life of the Savior. The rebellion against the king is going to grow. The religious leaders, for the most part, have already rejected the king's messenger, John the Baptist. They've already failed to respond to the king's message. They've already decided that they're not going to repent in spite of the miracles, in spite of the mighty works that we saw in chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. Now the religious leaders will accuse Jesus' disciples and also Jesus by virtue of the fact that he allows it of breaking the law and then later in the chapter he's going to accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil. Remember in chapter 11 Jesus said come to me all you who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest in verse 28. In chapter 12, the religious leaders are saying, in effect, we don't want your rest. We don't need your rest. We have our own rest, the Sabbath. The religious leaders, by the way, had turned the Sabbath into a nightmare of rules and regulations, of legalism, of added and additional difficulties. By the way, we should define legalism right from the start. Legalism is the belief that you gain and maintain acceptance with God by adhering to a set of rules. Legalism 
again, is the belief that you gain and maintain acceptance with God by adhering to the rules. My definition of legalism is when my opinion becomes your obligation. Jews had several distinctives as a culture, as as a people group. Sacrifice, circumcision, diet, Sabbath keeping. The Talmud, by the way, devotes 24 chapters to instructions for keeping the Sabbath. Now, I want to be very clear here. In all fairness to the Jewish people and to the Jews as a whole, these distinctives also kept the Jewish people by, from being swallowed up by the surrounding pagan culture and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the cultural influences. So the distinctives of sacrifice, circumcision, diet, and Sabbath keeping, were they evil or bad or wrong or legalistic in and of themselves? And the answer is no. God had given these distinctives to keep the Jewish people separate and distinct. The problem is that when these distinctives about sacrifice, circumcision, diet, and Sabbath keeping kept certain people from exercising mercy, compassion, and love. Jesus is criticized by the Pharisees for for allowing the disciples to pluck heads of grain from a field on the Sabbath. The king responds by pointing out two facts. Number one, the purpose of the Sabbath in verses one through seven. And then he will talk about the person of the Sabbath in verse 8. The purpose, we discover, is that the Sabbath was made for man and not the other way around. And then Jesus will point to the life of David in verses 3 and 4. And then he will speak to the issue of the law of Moses in verses 5 and 6. And then he's going to quote from an Old Testament book, from a prophetic book, from the book of Hosea in chapter 6, verse 6. And this is the second time he quotes the book of Hosea. And then Jesus is going to make the claim that the son of man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And by doing so, he's going to entertain not just the notion, but the declaration that he's greater than the temple and he's greater than the Sabbath. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is the Lord over demons and he's the Lord over disease and he's the Lord over disaster. But now Jesus is going to proclaim that he's the Lord even over despair. And you might wonder, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is for those who were despairing of keeping the law, of being good enough, we're going to discover something that this isn't something new. Mercy was always meant to triumph over sacrifice. Compassion and love and mercy were always supposed to begin our understanding of God. Jesus earlier claimed that God was his father in chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Now he claims to be the king of the Sabbath in verse 6. 
These concrete claims are going to erupt in a conflict that will eventually result in the leaders, the religious leaders, plot to kill Jesus. You can see that. We're just going to skip just ahead just for a brief moment and look at verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And so in verse 1, look what it says. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. This isn't, by the way, a reference to a granola god or an ancient grains granola reality. It says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. At that time means shortly after the events of chapter 11. The events of chapter 11 now become the events of chapter 12. Jesus and his disciples are taking a walk through some grain field after church or what we would say synagogue. And by the way, ancient grain fields had paths that people were free to walk through. There were borders that were designated by stone markers. As the disciples were walking, they began to pluck the heads of grain and rub them in their hands and then pop the kernels into their mouths. If you can imagine, it would be like if you were walking through a grove of sunflowers and you took some seeds and you rub the seeds together and you crack the shell and you pop the kernel into your mouth. This was all completely allowed in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, which allowed for travelers and it allowed for the hungry poor to glean grain along paths. And you'll note that in verse 1 it says, and his disciples were hungry. And later he's going to make reference to the fact that David and his men were Hungry. I don't think this is is just that simple. I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's after church, and I'm starting to get a little hungry. I'm thinking that this hunger is real, and it's intense, but it's a different kind of hunger as well. And, And let me tell you what I mean by that. It was a hunger that seemed to be manifested by the fact that people aren't offering the kind of food that they should have been offering on the synagogue as people are gathering gathering together and, and, and working with one another. And by the way, the disciples aren't stealing. So... The Pharisees don't accuse Jesus and the the disciples of stealing because they're not stealing. This particular activity was completely allowed under the law. But I want to point something out to you. The Pharisees must have been following close enough, following behind them, to see what was happening. And again, this is almost invariably one of the characteristics of the legalist. The legalist is always watching you, watching you, watching you, making sure. Are you, do, are you keeping the rules? Are you following the obligations? Watching you, watching you. To the religious Jews, Jesus' disciples were breaking the law and Jesus is the accomplice because he didn't rebuke them. 
The transgression, again, was not in taking the grain or eating the grain, but doing it on the Sabbath day. Because the Old Testament allowed for work. Six days and forbade working on the Sabbath. That's Exodus chapter 31, verses 13 and 14, where it says, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you, who sets you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So you can imagine breaking the Sabbath was serious business. It says, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from his people. Six days a week, people harvested the grain, prepared the grain, ate the grain. And so the religious leaders view this as work. And by the way, what constitutes work? You can imagine the religious leaders and the teachers of the law said, well, what do we mean by work? And so they drew up 39 basic things you couldn't do. Among them were reaping, winnowing, threshing, preparing a meal. But if that weren't enough, each forbidden act had to be carefully detailed. You couldn't carry a burden. What's a burden? A burden is anything heavier than two tried figs. So if you had a wooden leg, you had to take it off. If you had false teeth, you had to spit it out. If you had a bedroll, you couldn't carry it. If you had a mirror, you couldn't look into it. Why? Because a little gray hair might pop up and you might be tempted to pluck that baby out. And that would constitute work. You couldn't take a bath. Why? Because if you were in taking the bath, if the water spilled onto the floor, that was washing. Forbidden. And then the list went on and on and on. And the day of rest became a day of miserable apprehension for many. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest, of meditation, of reflection, of rejoicing in the Lord. But it soon, instead of becoming a, a source of, of, of respite, it became a burden. It became an obligation. The Sabbath wasn't simply a spiritual vacation, but a location. When the Jews were called into the promised land, they were supposed to rest in the promises of God. Shabbat, Sabbath, was supposed to be a time of personal and corporate refreshment. And the book of Hebrews chapter 4 teaches that the rest isn't simply a day for the Christian. Christians don't simply have a day in which they rest. They have a person in which they rest in. Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9 says, There remains a rest for the people of God, unquote. And for he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did from his in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 4. The Christian doesn't simply have a Sabbath day. 
So many people come to me and say, which day is the Sabbath? Hey, guess what? The Sabbath has always been and will always be from the time the sun goes down on Friday till the time the sun goes down on Saturday. It has never, ever changed. In the Hebrew culture, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and then Shabbat. So what does all of this mean? Does it matter what day you go to church? Must Christians keep a day more specifically? Is God really upset with you if you go to church on Saturday or Sunday or if you prefer Saturday to Sunday? Paul affirms that Jesus is the Shabbat. Jesus is the rest we've been looking for. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul wrote, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Shabbat. John Corson writes, quote, In other words, don't let anyone tell you that what you're looking for can be found in meats and drinks and holy days and Sabbath days. No, these Old Testament pictures are just shadows describing reality. The reality is Christ. We don't have a Sabbath day. We have a Sabbath God. We have a Sabbath Lord. He is our rest. He is our Shabbat. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Not simply as law, but as instructions for Christians living in a dispensation and a covenant of grace. And so what does all of this mean? Well, I think it means that Christians can't be condemned for failing to keep the Sabbath. And by the way, in the early church, there was a tremendous struggle. The tremendous struggle was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? And in Acts chapter 15, they resolved the issue. And the resolution was such that they basically said, look... In Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, James tells the believing Gentiles that you should abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from those things, you do well. And so the early church and the early disciples basically said, we can't compel our Gentile friends who have embraced Jesus from being a Jew. The distinctive day set aside for fellowship and worship, by the way, was long the first day of the week, Sunday. The Lord Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, John chapter 20, verse 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all agree without question that Jesus came back to life on Sunday. On the next two Sundays, Jesus met with his disciples. John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 26. The Holy Spirit was given on Sunday. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. The early disciples met 
on Sunday, the first day, to break bread, showing forth the Lord's death in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It was the day appointed by God on which Christians set aside money, funds, in order to minister to one another, encourage one another, and promote the work of the ministry according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And the religious leaders are angry. They are incensed. Jesus, what are you saying? Taking away our Sabbath? These are fighting words. They still are. You can't take away our Sabbath. Now remember what I've already told you. Shabbat, the law, circumcision, sacrifices. This is the collection of the distinctions that make the Jewish people uniquely and specifically Jewish. But there's something more. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's something more. This isn't just simply about retaining the distinctives that make a cultural identity which Jewish people rightly, not wrongly, can and should hold on to. It isn't about embracing or holding on to the distinctives. It's about wanting the rules. It's about keeping the rules. It's about wanting the rules and keeping the rules even if compassion and even if love and even if mercy are at stake. The Jews accuse both the disciples and Jesus of breaking the law. But did he? The answer is actually no. Jesus didn't break the law. He may have been guilty of breaking the man-made traditions associated with the law. But Jesus was never a lawbreaker. Ever. Jesus will point out that the Sabbath was a day of rest. And here's what else he's going to point out. It isn't wrong to honor the day of rest. But he also says, guess what? It's a day of rest, but it's also not supposed to be a day of painful burdens, absent mercy, absent love, absent compassion. The Jews thought they were defending the scriptures and revealing God's will, but they missed the point of both the Sabbath and the scripture. And so Jesus is going to take the battle back to the religious leaders. And look what he says in verse 3. But he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Shabbat, the priests in the temple profane the Shabbat and are blameless. I want you to note the very first thing that Jesus does. Jesus appeals to the scripture. He's the author and the inspiration behind these God-breathed words. Jesus himself is in fact saying in a very real way, don't you read your Bible? Don't you read what the scriptures say? And Jesus is appealing to the story which some of you are familiar with, perhaps not all of you. It's found in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21. 
You'll remember the context. David is fleeing for his life. He's been rejected by Saul as the king. Doesn't that sound exactly like what's happening right at this very moment? God appointed David to be king. God appointed Jesus to be the king. Saul said, I don't want you to be the king. I want to be the king. And I'm sure the religious leaders were, again, incensed. Now they're angry, not just for rebuking them, but they're angry because Jesus rebukes them for not understanding the Bible. What do you mean I don't understand the Bible? I read the Bible in the Hebrew language. No one knows the Bible better than I do. And Jesus is going, apparently you've misunderstood exactly what it says and exactly what it means. He points to the example of the life of David from the historical books, a priestly example from the law, and then a prophetic example from the prophets. He's going to cover the entire spectrum of the scripture. And this should cause us to pause just for a moment because you need to understand something. The purpose of the Bible isn't to bring you into further bondage. Let me help you with something right from the start. Particularly those of you who are afraid to read the Bible because you're afraid of what it might say that you can't do. That's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible was never meant simply to give you instruction about what you can't do. It was always meant to give you instruction about what you can do and who you are and who God is and what the Lord can do for you. The Bible was never meant to be a source of slavery. It was always meant to be a source of freedom. And so did David break the law when he and his men ate the showbread? It would appear that 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 is in fact what they did. But Jesus gives us a clue. He gives us an insight. Jesus reminds us that the rules weren't supposed to restrict people who were running the risk of being hurt. It wasn't David's fault that he was in exile. It wasn't his fault that he was on the run. It wasn't in fault that he was in exile and that he was on the run because the sinful nation should not have rejected him. But they did. William MacDonald points this out, quote, if he had been given his rightful place, he and his followers would not have had to eat the showbread because there was sin in Israel, because God permitted an otherwise forbidden act, unquote. When we have to pit one thing against the other, it isn't usually because the Bible isn't clear about a particular subject. It's because we fail to do what the Bible says. It's because we fail to honor not just the content of what it says, but the intent of what it says. A Jew on the Sabbath who fell sick or was injured in an accident could be given medical attention to keep him alive. But the religious leaders refused to make him better. 
the prohibition against work on the Sabbath was never meant to include the service to God. And so Jesus points this out. Prohibition of work. Yeah. Well, if there's a prohibition against work, then why do the priests get to work? Well, the priests get to work because they have to work. So the prohibition apparently doesn't include service to God. And later in the New Testament, Jesus is going to ask the question, is it wrong to do what's right? What do you think the answer is? Of course it isn't wrong to do what's right. The prohibition against work on the Sabbath was never meant to include service to God. It was never meant to include deeds of necessity. That's verses 3 and 4. It was never meant to include the deeds of mercy, which he's going to talk about later in verses 11 and 12, which we're going to talk about next week. So whatever it meant to keep the Sabbath, it was never meant to exclude service to God. It was never meant to exclude deeds of necessity. It was never meant to exclude acts of mercy. And so David made an exception. His men were hounded. They were hungry. They were hurting. Imagine a world where people are hounded and hungry and hurting. And you say to them, but we have rules. And we don't care that you're hounded or hungry or hurting. When the men ate the bread, David wasn't disciplined. He wasn't rebuked. And neither was Ahimelech, the priest. God allowed a rule to be overlooked in order to minister to hurting people. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Because some of you, instead of thinking God overlooked a rule in order to help hurting people, you're going to say, oh, you mean there's an exception to the rule of breaking the rules? Again, if that's your mindset, chances are you'll find a reason to break the rules and then you'll justify it. But that's not the point of the passage. If God was willing to do that with one of his own rules, the point that is being made, if the Lord, if the Lord is willing to do that with one of his own rules, how much more could Jesus take liberty with the man-made traditions that kept people in bondage and did not provide rest? The Jews must have thought, what does David have to do with what you've done? David didn't eat the bread on the Sabbath. And besides, I'm sure that this was one of those moments when the Pharisees could have easily have said, and by the way, you're no David. Are they wrong? Not only is he way more than the temple and way more than the Sabbath, he's way more than David. God allowed the bread to be eaten because human need takes precedence over ceremonial law. I want you to let that burn inside of you just for a moment. The emphasis in the Bible isn't when the rules, that the rules are greater than human need. Sacrifice and mercy and love mean that Human beings are more important than ceremonial law. 
And every Jew knew what Jesus meant in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, their priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they are blameless? Even the radical, legalistic Jewish people, the religious leaders, and in particularly the Pharisee, would not have taken exception. They would have been willing to concede that there seems to be an exception to the rule. The priests didn't break the commandment. The priests fulfill the commandment. They're allowed to serve in the tabernacle or the temple. They have to work just like the preacher has to work on Sunday. I know what most of you are thinking, and what a great job. We have to work six days, and you only have to work one, and then only for 45 minutes. Yeah, keep telling yourself that. And here's the point. The purpose of the Sabbath was for people to love the Lord, to rest, and to serve him. And like the other portions of the law, do you think it was meant to restrict love or promote love for the Lord? It was meant to promote love. And by the way, the simplest thing for anyone to do is to substitute laws, rules, for love. Love is hard. Rules are easy. You know how we know that? Imagine if a young man wanted to date you or a, or a young lady, and she said, okay, I'm willing to be your boyfriend or your girlfriend, but let's get the rules straight. How many times do I have to call you in the day and, and we can say that we still like each other? What if I like you on Facebook or what if I mention you in a tag or what exactly do I need to do in order to maintain a relationship with you? Does that sound like the kind of relationship that you want to have? And that's the point. The religious leaders refuse to do acts of mercy and compassion on the Sabbath. And I want you to understand this. The religious leaders... Refused to do acts of mercy and compassion, not because the law forbade it, but because of the hardness of their hearts. They were the true violators of the Sabbath, one Bible writer writes, because they invalidated the word of God for the sake of their tradition, unquote. But look what it says in verse 6, yet I say to you that in this place... There's one greater than the temple. This could be translated, I say to you that in this place, something greater than the temple is here. That something might mean the kingdom of God. It might mean the person of the king present at that very moment. And in verse 7 it says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The legalists and the religious leaders have gone from upset to anger 
to burning hot, white hot anger. And I'm going to say even rage. When Jesus says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus again is quoting Hosea chapter 6 verse 6. Jesus is speaking about himself. Now I want you to think about this for just a moment. To the religious Jew, to the observant Jew, what was more important than the temple? Nothing. Except God himself. There was, if, if you were to take a hierarchy of things that are important, here's the temple, what's above the temple only God himself. By the way, later in the chapter, Jesus claims to be greater than Jonah in chapter 12, verse 41, greater than Solomon in verse 42. The Jews are going to ask him in John chapter eight, verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? Are you greater than our father Jacob, John 4, 12? In first John, the apostle says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Here, Jesus isn't trying to prove his deity, but rather he's supporting the notion that in light of his deity, because Jesus just so happens to be God, he doesn't obligate himself or his disciples to the man-made traditions, to the additions of the Sabbath observances. If David has the right to act in a way contrary to the laws of the tabernacle, if priests were given the opportunity to serve in the temple, does Jesus and his disciples have the right to serve the Savior. That's the argument. In verse 7, Jesus accuses the Bible teachers of, again, not knowing the Bible. And when he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Don't ignore the riches of the first part for the riches of the second part. What does Hosea 6, 6 say? But if you had known what this means, when Jesus says that, but if you had known what this means, the reason why this becomes important to each and every one of you, it's because when the person says, as you read the Bible, that's your interpretation or that's your application, Jesus is giving you permission in this particular verse that you should know what it means. For the person who says, I don't need to know what the Bible says, and I don't need to, to know what the Bible means, you couldn't be more mistaken. It's a command for all of us to begin to ask and answer the question, what does this passage really mean? So Jesus is in effect saying, don't you know what God is really like. How could you possibly, in your wildest dreams, read the Bible, claim to understand what it says, and neglect and fail to see the heart of God? How could you do that? How could you look into the Bible and then look into the heart of God and then look into the revelation of God and then look into the scriptures? And come to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament is some ogre in heaven who wants to smash you with a stick. How could you? 
how could you read the Bible and miss the message that there's a father who loves you and that he's filled with mercy and compassion. By the way, the word mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. Some of you know that word. Hesed is a word that's translated mercy sometimes, loving kindness sometimes. Here it means mercy, but again, it implies and suggests compassion. It supplies compassionate treatment of those who are in distress, who do not have the ability to fend for themselves. And so the reoccurring theme in the Bible is that when there are people who can't advocate for themselves or speak for themselves, that you have a responsibility to do exactly that. And when the weakest and the most vulnerable and the most marginalized men and women and people in the world and in society are shoved to the very edges of acceptance. It's the Christian's responsibility to remind the world that there is such a thing as mercy, that there is such a thing as compassion, that there is such a thing as love. And by the way, you never ever have to pit mercy against truth or compassion against truth. Or love against truth. And so Jesus himself says the Lord desires mercy. Which means it gives you permission to say, you know what, I'm going to go with Jesus' first choice. If you make me choose between compassion and the rules, I'm going to choose compassion. If you make me choose between mercy and the rules, I'm going to choose mercy. If you make me choose between love and the rules, then I'm going to choose love. Now again, observing the commandments of the law was never ever meant to, to serve as a substitute for heart righteousness and heart compassion. God wants us to be merciful. But I want you to think about this. Why does God want you to be merciful? Because he's merciful. God wants you to be full of compassion. Why? Because he's full of compassion. God wants you to be loving. Why? You guys are starting to get it. This is exactly right. Judgment is punishment for those who reject mercy. Judgment comes from the person who says, you know what? I don't want mercy. I don't want compassion. I don't want grace. For the person who says, I reject mercy, I can reject compassion, I reject grace, they only have one thing left to embrace. And so when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I'm sure at this point, veins are bulging. Brown Middle Eastern people are turning red because all of the blood has rushed to their face. Why? Why? Because only God is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
All the law points to Jesus. All the law finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The son of man here could mean human beings. Or it could mean the preference of title that Jesus gives to himself. The bottom line, all the ritual, all the rules, all the legitimate prohibitions and restrictions point to Jesus. And now the Lord of the Sabbath is present. And so when Jesus says, your rest is present, Jesus is claiming an authority. And he's giving instructions. I want you to listen carefully. Jesus is claiming authority. Jesus is giving instructions that he has the right to determine how the Sabbath is going to be observed. And he links it to his lordship and his authority. And this becomes so very, very important for you. Because now Jesus says, the Sabbath isn't just simply a day that you observe. It's a person that you trust. It's a salvation that you embrace. We have rest in our conscience. Why? Earlier Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, I'll give you rest. We have rest in the fear of judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 and John 5, 24. There's rest from the fear of death. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil and rest from the power of sin because we've sought the Lord and he's given us rest. It says in 2 Chronicles 14, we have rest in our heart rest in our fellowship and now we begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said take my yoke you will find rest Jesus is the son of man Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath Jesus is the son of David and I want you to think about something as hard as this is for you to believe why was it wrong to work on the Sabbath? Because God said so. It's that simple. God said so. Why is it right to exercise mercy, compassion, and love on the Sabbath? You're getting it. You're getting it. You're getting it. Legalism is the belief that you maintain acceptance with God because you keep the rules. That somehow keeping the rules is what pleases God. But remember what Jesus said? This is what I desire. If you've ever wanted to know what pleases God, look up all of the passages in the scripture where Jesus says, this is what I desire. By the way, are you a legalist? Do you believe that others can only be right with God because they keep rules? Your rules? Do you believe that God loves you less and that you're in danger of losing God's love because you haven't kept the rules? You know, there's a simple way to discern whether or not you have a problem with legalism. I'm going to give you a simple test. Number one, do you care more about the rules than people? Number two, 
do you rarely help people out? Number three, do you rarely place anyone ahead of yourself? Number four, do you think grace is a prayer that you say before meals instead of the source of salvation? Number five, do you think you're a good Christian and everyone else is a bad Christian because they don't act exactly like you? Rules are always easier than relationship, than fellowship, than mercy, compassion, and love. But you already know the answer, what God wants. He's shown you what the Lord wants and what he requires of you. But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk in humility with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, we pray that you would awaken within our hearts a fresh understanding and appreciation of what it means to read our Bible and understand what it means and how it applies to us. And Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who gets tempted to sometimes substitute the rules and religion for relationship and fellowship. Lord, give us hearts that we can cultivate mercy, compassion, kindness, that we would desire, Lord, what you desire. That what you want is what we would want. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.